Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's bring in Bradford Edwards, Portfolio Manager and Senior VP at Heartland Advisors. I want to talk to you, Brad, about balance sheets. I started my career lending money to media companies, so we always looked at net debt to EBITDA and coverage ratios and all that kind of good stuff. Now I've got interest rates rising. Is there interest rate risk out there for more companies that maybe we're thinking about? Well, Paul, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Um, what I would just tell you is, you know, you know, Heartland, uh, we're, we're a, a value boutique here in Milwaukee, and I, I manage one of our small cap portfolios. And our goal is to invest through investment cycles, and you know we seek to invest in undervalued small cap stocks that um, have strong balance sheets, pay dividends, and generate strong free cash flow. That, that, I would just tell you that you know we're in an environment where you know for most investors it, 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 at a high level, balance sheets only matter when there's credit stress, and you know most investors are focused on earnings and earnings growth and you know balance sheets matter especially when the fed is raising its rates and the old the old mantra goes don't fight the fed so we think you know our process which you know you know has been tested through various bull and bear markets and through cycles is is a, a prudent uh, strategy in this environment because especially in the small cap space uh, we have a lot of companies that are unprofitable we have a lot of companies that have very shaky balance sheets and we have a lot of companies that have very secularly challenged growth outlooks. And so our job is to weed through all that chafe and find things that are you know, interesting and have, uh, have investment merit through, um, you know, through an investment cycle that we look for between you know, two to three years. Is that the focus? Is that your professional focus? Because I noticed you were recognized as a category king manager by The Wall Street Journal. I don't know what that is. So, you know, Heartland's long been known for uh, value investing, and, and, and uh, the Heartland Value Plus Fund, which I do lead manage, is, uh, is a, uh, a dividend-focused small-cap fund that uh, looks for undervalued small companies which pay dividends. And, you know, we, we, think, we think low debt has merits uh, always because, you know, low debt companies have lower volatility uh, than their high debt uh, counterparts. So that's an important dynamic, especially as the Fed is raising rates. It lowers volatility, especially in a, por a portfolio context. You know, there's an environment also where, you know, highly levered companies have much less flexibility in terms of free cash flow deployment. And especially as we're going through a downturn, or I should say maybe an economic economy that is peaking and the Fed that is is messaging an aggressive rate cycle to tame the inflationary pressures, uh, having having free cash flow flexibility to buy back stock if it's undervalued, to service any debt you might have, to maintain your dividends, and then maybe you know, look for attractive M&A uh, opportunities uh, when others are not is, is really a recipe to win, uh, especially, you know, we, we often see, um, and we saw this, the COVID crisis is balance sheets were very stressed going into the COVID crisis. And that was as a result of, you know, really uh, interest rates being very low and many companies, you know, feasting on that low leverage to acquire companies at high valuations. And the end result of that was, you know, a lot of pain for investors as as, as we saw the COVID recession. I, I can understand, I mean, how you screen for uh, small cap value stocks, um, especially then you go look at the balance sheet and you can make that judgment. How do you know if a company is an M&A candidate? Well, we never really make an investment with that uh, as a as you know the necessary outcome. But usually, what we will find is you know in the, in the small cap space, 
higher quality companies that are on the bargain bin. Um, they might be underloved, underfollowed, but if, if we have managed teams that are effectively pursuing a strategy, we like to call it a self-help strategy, which is really where where management teams are very internally focused. They're focused on reducing costs, perhaps restructuring operations, or perhaps divesting non-core assets that might be dilutive to their overall organization from a margin perspective. We usually find those self-help uh, stories as, as being ones where uh, they don't need the macroeconomic environment really to give them tailwinds to 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 be successful in driving operating leverage and margin expansion. They really need to focus in on on their internal asset base and and their existing operations to drive uh, value for shareholders. And especially in an environment where perhaps the Fed is going to be on the prowl with higher interest rates, that we think that's going to be an effective place to be. And just to answer your question, uh, those self help strategies, you know, those companies that are perhaps underloved, underfollowed because of some self-inflicted internal issue, if they are successful in pursuing that self-help strategy, on top of having a strong balance sheet, those companies usually become a part of large organizations over time. Hey, Brad, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Bradford Evans, Portfolio Manager and Senior VP at Heartland Advisor, Small Cap Value. All right, here's the conversation of the morning, at least for me. One of the questions that I've had as we look at what's unfolding in Ukraine over the last couple of months is, what do the Russian people know? Do they, do they know, A, that there's a war on, B, the conduct of the Russian military within Ukraine? And if so, what is their level of support for Mr. Putin and this war? And fortunately, Leonid Bershitsky, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, is out with a column on that today. So, Leonid, do you have a sense of what the Russian people know about what's going on in Ukraine? Well, uh, Russia uh, has turned into a pretty close society recently, so I can only make an educated guess. But my educated guess is that they uh, is that people inside Russia know a lot about what's going on, and and they understand correctly what is going on. So uh, they're not really taken in by the uh, by the propaganda, even if they might say they are. So. It Am I to assume then that they tacitly approve Putin's conduct in Ukraine? Mm, well, the, you know, in the police state, uh, and sort of a, a, a copy of the Soviet Union that Russia has turned into now, they're mostly busy surviving. So it's not really, um, you know, tacit agreement or uh, acquiescence to what the Russian military is doing in Ukraine. It's, it's you know, every man for himself and, and every woman. Yeah. Uh, you know, people are just trying to um, basically avoid clashing directly with the regime, mostly. Yeah, I mean... It's understandable, um, right? When we see these surveys, I kind of wonder how many people were being honest. I hear from friends of mine that grew up in East Germany that they would not criticize the state publicly, not on the telephone, not at school, um, for fear of being, uh, you know, punished. Exactly, and and this is uh, you know this is a time-honored Soviet instinct. Especially the older generation of Russians remember remembers how it used to be, and they would never, whatever they think about what's going on, they would never publicly express those opinions or say anything on the phone or on Skype or on any method of remote communication because they assume that uh, even if the authorities aren't listening, they can listen in. So. You know, here in the U.S., um, 
And I guess in Western Europe as well, younger generations don't really watch television anymore. Everyone um, gets entertainment and information from the Internet. And I, I notice especially Europeans use VPNs a lot. The um, uh, what is that? A virtual personal network. Yep. Virtual private network. Virtual yes. private network. Um, in your column, you point out that even Dmitry Peskov uses a VPN. So does everybody in Russia have one? Uh, well, the VPNs uh, actually have been uh, all of the top four most downloaded apps in March were VPNs in Russia. Um, and the fifth one was Telegram, uh, you know, the encrypted messenger. And this allows so, people to get around state controls of the Internet, basically. Uh, yes, it does. Uh, but it, it allows them to get around state controls of both information and, inter and, and entertainment. Basically, the, you know, those Western services like Netflix that have quit Russia are still accessible via VPN. So a lot of people download these to be able to, you know, watch their favorite uh, TV series. Leonid, you know, I've been thinking that at the very least, Mr. Putin will never, ever be accepted back onto the world stage. We'll never see him at a G20 summit. Now I'm wondering, as we go into the second and third month of this war, Russia itself, are, what is the feeling about Russia in terms of being part of the world community? Because it seems like at this point, based upon their behavior over the past couple of months in Ukraine, that they are not welcomed in the world order do the, does the average Russian even care about any of that? Well, the average Russian, as I said, is probably busy surviving, uh, you know, th those who have not left the country. Those who have left the country are obviously feeling a certain change, of, change in attitudes. Uh, and, you know, Russians are not, not welcome in many places where they used to be welcome. And, and they're not, um, you know, treated with... Um, you know, as treated is in in the same friendly way as as they used to be treated in many places. Uh, inside Russia, people perhaps have not felt this yet, uh, but it is a similar situation to the one that Germans found themselves in after World War II. Yeah, I will actually even say, you know, Leonid, I was living in Berlin. Um, uh, around um, 2002, 2003, and was welcome at all parties before the invasion of Iraq. The, basically, the day the U.S. invaded Iraq, and if you recall at the time, it was without um, the uh, approval of Gerhard Schroeder and the German government. The day after that, I was like persona non grata. <laughs> and it sounds silly, but it, yeah, it is absolutely it true. I, I, I felt it instantly. Do you feel the same kind of, did you feel the same kind of turn? Or, or do your friends, um, Russian friends around Berlin or in Western Europe, feel the same kind of change all of a sudden? Well, yes, somebody tried to set my daughter's school on fire, which is a bilingual school. Uh, so, you know, you, you get um, all sorts of people and all sorts of attitudes. And, uh, you know, you, you get nasty reactions sometimes from some people when you speak Russian in public. Uh, I, you have to basically, well... I, I can't really say take it in stride, yep. but you have to accept it as 
um, sort of normal retribution, retribution for what the you know the country's military is doing. I mean, as as Russians, we all bear part of the responsibility for not stopping this in time. Leonid, thirty seconds left. How do you think this ends uh, in Ukraine? Huh. Well, I, I I don't think it ed- ends in the, in the foreseeable future. Okay. But do you think the people, I mean, is Putin's position in, within Russia as strong as it ever has been? And there's, and there's relatively low risk that the people will overthrow him? him. Overthrow With him. The, the, current, the current level of repression, I don't think uh, this is imminent in any way. All right, Leonid Bershitsky, thank you so much for joining us, uh, giving us a you know, really fascinating column there uh, for uh, uh, Bloomberg Opinion. Just talk about, uh, you know, as someone who used to live in Russia and as a Russian now in Berlin, giving us his thoughts about uh, what's happening in Ukraine from the Russian perspective. And again, it just kind of begs the question, what do the Russian people really know? Uh, and based upon that knowledge, how supportive are they of uh, the Russian state, the Russian army, the Russian policy towards uh, Ukraine? All right, let's talk about stocks here. Peter McNally joins us here. He's global lead. He looks at industrials, materials, energy. Third Bridge Group Limited. Uh, Peter, we had Delta come out with some numbers today, some good numbers, some good guidance. What's your call on the airline space here? Are we kind of back or are we still waiting for the business side of the of, of flying to come back? Well, it's good to be with you guys. I mean, revenue is coming back. It has been, you know, particularly on the on the leisure side. There's still a ways to go, though, in business and long-haul international. But what hasn't come back yet have been profits, right? I mean, even though you know, Delta in the second quarter is going to get close, close, not quite to 2019 levels of revenue, it's fundamentally less profitable because costs are higher. And it's both on labor, which is the biggest cost, and fuel. But that's coming. I mean, Delta's managing well. Um, you know, they'll be profitable most likely for the rest of the year. Um, but, you know, relative to expectations, things have picked up for Delta. So what about uh, ticket prices? Are they able to – do they have the pricing power to make up for rising fuel costs? Well, that was, you know, one of the key messages I think that Delta delivered today is that they are getting, you know, getting pricing. You know, it's not bringing them the whole way back, but on, on a unit basis – um, they have recovered to uh, actually record levels, of, you know, beyond where they were in, in 2019. There is pent up demand for travel. That is that is fundamental, and you know we're seeing it as you know other countries open up. Um, you, know, you, you see the bookings in in international. We've obviously been through that here in the leisure market in the United States. And, you know, Delta in particular has been slow to add capacity. Now, some of it in the industry is because of labor constraints. You know, we, we saw JetBlue last week, you know, actually cut some flights because, uh, you know, for the summer because they are concerned about staffing levels. Delta is managing this pretty well. Uh, they may be an outlier. Um, you know, relative to the, you know, to the industry. But that is something we're going to watch, you know, through the summer. Yeah, I've just been on, you know, a couple of flights over the past couple of weeks and the load factor, as they say in, in, in the business, got to be near 100 percent. My, my planes were, were, were packed here. Where are we in terms of capacity? Have the airlines brought all their capacity back online? Have they taken some of those parked aircraft in the in the desert and brought them back? No, it's been it's been slow. I mean, look, in, in the domestic leisure market, you know, you're basically there. But, you know, Delta's still only in the mid 80s. 
at this point in terms of capacity, and they're only adding a little bit, you know, here in the second quarter, despite despite this, you know, uptick. The labor is going to be a constraint in the industry. You know, is that what, pilots, you know, or is that just people servicing the planes? Well, it's you know, it, it's actually like a lot of things. I mean, Delta was even talking about how within the airport they're having to take over some of the operations themselves. Right. Um, you know, things that had you know had normally been you know, been outsourced. But, you know, Delta's hired like 15,000 people in the last year or so. Um, you know, they do seem to be getting ahead of it, but not every airline has been, let's say, as successful in hiring enough people to man all these, you know, all these flights. And it began about a year ago where the airlines started talking about pilots, you know, and, and the constraints there. And, uh, you know, labor issues are not going to go away in this industry. Peter, I've, I've always felt like um, airlines in America don't have pricing power relative to, you know, history. When I was a kid, I remember flying out to San Francisco to watch The Grateful Dead. And then I did it again when they had their 50th anniversary a few years back. And I paid the same price for the same ticket, you know, 20 years apart. So I thought that was a little bit weird. But then after having lived in Europe for a while where I wouldn't have paid more than $100 for (laughs) an international ticket, um, I feel like there's something very different about this market. What what is the deal with the U.S. market? Is it just an oddly regulated pocket? Well, I mean, look, there's one thing that we learned or maybe was we were reminded of through the pandemic is that investors, whether they're, you know, credit or equity investors, don't stop giving airlines money, you know, and and we're able to finance this industry. I mean, we had startups, we had IPOs through the pandemic, and we've never seen a decline, you know, like this. Now, we, we, we've moved a lot of planes around and, you know, fleets have been, you know, reorganized and gotten more, you know, more efficient. But, you know, it is an industry that does, you know, thrive on competition and there's always new, you know, new entrants, you know, coming in. It'll be interesting to watch, you know, at the low end of the market, this fight that has emerged over spirit. You know, this is the this is right. the ultra low cost carrier, you know, that's out there. And, they, you know, two you know, companies in it, they've, they've been disruptive, you know, particularly in Florida, which has, you know, been been the hottest market in domestic travel. You know, since the since the recovery began nearly nearly two years ago. Good stuff. Peter McNally, thanks so much uh, for joining us there. Timely discussion there with the the good numbers coming out of Delta. And they had some good guidance, too, about summer travel. So good to get Peter's thoughts there. He's global lead industrials, materials and energy. Third bridge group is uh, his gang over there. So good to get an update there. All right. Tough, tough first market for fixed income investors. And I've got a Federal Reserve that's hell-bent on raising rates throughout this year. So what's a fixed income investor to do? Let's check in with Ellis Pfeiffer. He does it for real. Managing Director of Fixed Income Capital Markets at Raymond James, Ray J, as we call him, in the business. Great little firm down there in Florida. I've competed against them for a long time. Good stuff. Ellis, um, talk to us about investing in the fixed income markets these days. What do you do? That's a great question. That's it's the question I get almost every day. Good morning. Um, what we're saying, what we found out over time is, you know, when the Fed is in this kind of environment, 
is we like to do somewhat of a, a multi-pronged approach. One is we like cash flow in our in our portfolios. That's what we've been telling uh, clients to to maintain cash flow, amortizing products such as mortgage backs to bring in um, cash that you can reinvest at the higher rates as the Fed moves higher. We do like floaters at this point. We normally aren't big fans of floaters until the Fed begins to move because that's when you actually capture most of the move uh, from their from from the rising rates. Um, and then as far as the rest of the portfolio. We uh, we barbell, uh, classic barbell in a, in a curve movement environment like it is, a flattening environment like it is. Uh, we like um, more negatively convex products like, uh, you know, option embedded products like callables and mortgages uh, that I mentioned earlier. And then we like more of our positive convexity on the back end of the curve where we can kind of control that risk factor a little bit. I haven't heard convexity terms since my finance <laughs> class in, you know, at Duke. Down Do you there. not watch surveillance? Yeah, but I... Uh, it's up there with Zeitgeist among zeitgeist. the most mentioned well, words got, on he's, surveillance. He's got his own, you know, he's got his own language. Convexity is a pharaoh thing, and Zeitgeist is Tom. Okay. I wonder what, Le- I wonder what, uh, I wonder what Lisa says. Just all things credit. So, I don't know. So, Ellis, so, in the corporate market, do I go high yield? Do I stay investment grade? What do I do? Um, right now, I think you're you're better off on the corporate market uh, in the in the, uh, in the investment grade. Okay. I, I think the the risk is just um, you know the Fed normally doesn't end uh, in a soft landing. We've only had one uh, to my count, uh, ninety four, ninety five, and so you know I think the with spreads have all widened across the curve. But uh, you know as far as an up in quality trade, I think still remains the, the the right move at this point. Is there ever a time when someone who works in fixed income says? Man, now's not a not not a good time to be in fixed income. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I have done that um, uh, before. I mean, it's it is it is one thing you have to be careful with. Obviously, in a, in a balanced portfolio, um, you want to be, you know, probably underweight uh, interest rate products at this point. But you know, we have a lot of clients uh, who are depositories, money managers, fixed income products, things like that. They must maintain investments. And so we try to adjust their weightings accordingly in order to best fit that environment. So are your corporate clients, Ellis, um, do they feel like the party's over in terms of new issuance that the window's closing, if not closed? Or what are you hearing from your corporate clients? Uh, No, I think think the the product is still very viable at this point. I think we're still getting... um, you know some so, some good flow. I mean, it's obviously things have changed with the, with the flattening. But you know, when when you're looking at corporate credit, a lot of it gets swapped out once it's uh, initiated. Um, that will tighten up as the Fed tightens. But I think there's there's still an open window at this point. I think that we got a little bit of time before we get to that close. That you know, as it closes. Was that it for the inversion? Do you feel like that was one yeah. and done? Uh, I do for now. Um, and and part of that is if you look at the you know, twos, tens curve, which I've always used as, as a very good measurement. I mean, all recessions, as we know, have been uh, led by an inversion, but not all inversions cause a recession. And in the threes, tens, though, the three-month to ten-year, not the threes to tens, but the three-month to ten-year is very wide, still at 190 basis points. Um, and I don't think we're going to get that kind of indication of a recession until those two curves uh, come more into alignment. Right, I think I understand quantitative easing, but now I'm being told by credit folks like you that there's going to be quantitative tightening. What does that look like? How, how does that actually get affected in the market? 
Well, the uh, the Fed will uh, in their portfolio. There, there's a certain amount of runoff with maturities and and mortgage runoff from their holdings, and so they're going to allow that to to actually begin. Uh, in the past, every bit of runoff has been met or exceeded by their purchases, and and when they when they stopped making new purchases, that's where they kind of left it. Uh, they kind of made it even at that point. So now they're going to let that run off to a certain limit. And so they'll they'll build that up over time. I expect that to come in May uh, at their next meeting, uh, and they'll ramp that up to about $95 billion per month, which is, in effect, you know, it, it brings about a double-barrel tightening uh, in the market. I mean, you've got, you've got them raising rates as well as taking liquidity out of the market by allowing this runoff. Uh, so they're not putting that liquidity back into the system. All right, so uh, how far down do you think we can get, and what's the terminal rate? Just got about 30 seconds here. Um, as far down, uh, you know, the, the, the truth be told, that's going to be a difficult one for them at this point. They, they're pretty much in a very difficult bind. As far as terminal rate, you know, if you think about the Fed, if, if they are right in hitting their 275 median projection in the dot plot, uh, the terminal rate on tens is probably north of that in the, you know, three and a quarter to 350 range. I think that's a that's a real possibility on tens, but that should occur before the Fed or at the time the Fed uh, uh, begins to uh, stop tightening. All right, Ellis, good stuff. We really appreciate getting some of your valuable time, Ellis Pfeiffer, managing director, fixed income capital markets for Raymond James. Uh, again, sees that fifty basis point uh, hike in interest rates coming up at the next meeting in May, uh, and then the runoff uh, likely to occur as begin as well then. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.